Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host, and today, reassessing the legacy of one of Israel's founding fathers. The associations you have when you hear the name Menachem Begin depend on how old you are. If, like me, you were a child in the 70s, the image of Begin as maverick peacemaker alongside Anwar Sadat comes to mind. If you're older than that, you might think of a more troubling scene like the massacre at Deir Yassin. Begin is a divisive figure in Israel's history, where some people see a terrorist, other people see a hero. Daniel Gordas, an American Jew who moved to Israel in 1998, sees the latter, a hero, but a complicated hero. He's written a new biography of the late Israeli statesman for Next Book Press. The book is called Menachem Begin, The Battle for Israel's Soul. And Daniel Gordas joins us on the podcast today to discuss it. Danny Gordas, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks. Delight to be here. As you know, there are a fair number of Begin biographies out there. What made you want to write your own? And was there something that you felt was missing from those previous accounts? Well, the next book series, as you know, has really done a tremendous amount to bring well-known and less well-known Jewish personalities to the attention of a much wider audience. And when Next Book approached me and asked me about writing a biography, I was, of course, honored and thrilled. And Jonathan Rosen, who was then the editor, and I began to discuss what I should write about and who I should write about. After some long process, he knew that I wanted to write about Jewish peoplehood. That's an issue very much at the center of my thinking these days. And I said, I really want to write a book about Jewish peoplehood. How do you make it into a biography? And he said, you should write about Begin because peoplehood was really at the core of what Begin was all about. It was a brilliant suggestion. I didn't know nearly enough about Begin at the point to know how wise Jonathan's suggestion was. Um, but I wanted to basically look at Begin as a lens through which to see how Israel grappled with the idea of the Jewish people. And that's what's different about this book. There are a large number of biographies about Begin, both in English and in Hebrew. What I wanted to try to cover that nobody else did is to ask, what was the Jewish lens of Menachem Begin? How did he see the world? What animated him? And uh, that's what I've tried to accomplish in the book. So for listeners who know very little about Menachem Begin, I wonder if you can briefly tell us about his background. Sure. He was born in Bresklatovsk, which was kind of traded between Poland and Russia on and again and off again in 1913. He came of age, therefore, between the wars, between the First World War and the Second World War. And uh, relatively early in his life, came under the influence, was captivated, mesmerized by Vladimir Jabotinsky, who was then the father of revisionist Zionism, who was breaking away from the mainstream political Zionists. Jabotinsky felt that mainstream political Zionists were simply not doing enough to create a Jewish state. If you wanted one, he said, you actually have to go make one. And whether it's the Turks or the British after them in Palestine, you got to push them. you got to press them because no empire is willingly going to give up space for Jews to have a state. So Begin very early on, even in his teenage years, was completely captivated by Jabotinsky. One of the charming stories that people tell about him in those years is that he was on a train somewhere in Poland when he was already a rising star in the Beitar Youth Movement, which was the youth movement of Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionism. And he was apparently sitting next to the prettiest girl in Brisk-Litovsk. Everybody knew her as the prettiest girl. And everybody was saying, oh, my God, you know, Menachem Begin is sitting next to her lucky guy. And apparently all he did was talk to her about Jabotinsky. <laughs> so she probably wanted to jump off the train. Um, so he was really taken with this very early on. Then not that much later, he went to college. He went to law school. Um, he married Aliza, with whom he stayed the rest of his life, one of these storied love, love stories, um, fled 
Poland, when the, when the Nazis invaded, went to Russia, was arrested by the Soviets for Zionist activity, which was what they called a crime. He eventually was released from Soviet prison to join the Polish Free Army. The Polish Free Army got him to Palestine in 1942. 1942, he takes over the Irgun, which is the underground military movement associated with Jabotinsky and quickly declares that he is going to start attacking the British left and right so that they will stop preventing Jewish refugees from entering Palestine. You have to remember 1942, Europe is ablaze and there are millions of Polish Jews who have nowhere to go and Begin felt if they have nowhere to go, they're not going to try to flee. If you could actually let the word out that there was a place for them to go to, Many of them are going to die, but some would actually flee. So the British, of course, immediately declared him terrorist number one, and he went into hiding for several years, stayed in hiding until almost when the state was founded, when the British were leaving, they didn't have any interest in pursuing him anymore. As you mentioned in your very fine introduction, that was a period of many of the more controversial things that he did. Uh, in 1948, Israel's founded. He joins the political opposition, stays in the opposition for 29 years, and becomes, according to most historians, the only world leader, in other words, the only leader of a sovereign state ever to be elected on the eighth try. I want to stop you right there. Let's um, We're going to unpack some of those chapters. Before we do, though, let's just say what happened to his family. He left his family in Europe, and, and what happened? He left a father, a mother, and a brother. His sister actually also escaped Poland right around the time that he did. Um, when he got to Palestine, he had no idea what had happened to his family. He later discovered that his father and brother had been shot along with a large number of other Jews and tossed into the river. His mother had survived and then had been taken to a hospital with severe respiratory illness. And then at a certain point, the Nazis came into the hospital, took all the patients out of the hospital, gunned them all down. So his parents and brother were killed. His brother, his, his sister ended up making her way to Palestine as well. So Begin is a very difficult figure to categorize. He had very humanist impulses, but he was also quite ruthless in uh, his approach to politics. He got nicknames like the terrorist and the butcher of Deir Yassin. At the same time, he showed a kind of universal humanism. He offered safe haven to refugees from Vietnam, and he very much had a commitment and strong feeling for the Jews and Jewish safety and Jewish peoplehood. He has this legacy of having been the first Israeli leader to make peace with uh, an Arab leader. Let's look at all of those aspects of his biography, and let's start with the label that seems to have been or would probably, one imagines, be hardest to shed, that of terrorist. What were the events that got him that reputation? Well, he was head of one of the three major Jewish underground groups that existed during the British mandate that were each in their own different kind of a way trying to get the British to leave. Uh, there was one that was much more radical than his, which was the Lehi, which was run actually by Yitzhak Shamir, who became the prime minister after Begin. The Lehi was known for having no qualms whatsoever about attacking civilians, uh, killing government officials, and so on and so forth. The Irgun, in fairness to Begin, attacked British military installations everywhere, uh, blew up the King David Hotel because that was a British military installation, uh, blew up all sorts of British military camps, stole weapons. So they did use violence, but the Irgun actually went to great lengths to try to avoid civilian casualties at every turn. Now, there were a number of operations that went horribly awry, 
And those were the operations that got him the moniker of the terrorist. Uh, those, the two major ones were the Dir Yassin massacre, uh, which was not an intentional massacre at all. We'll come back to that in a minute. And of course, the bombing of the King David Hotel, where the British simply ignored the warnings that were made to leave the building. The purpose of bombing the King David Hotel was actually to destroy evidence that the British had collected when they had raided the offices of all of the underground operations and the government in waiting, so to speak, of the Yeshuv, which was the Jewish community of Palestine back then. The British, on a day called Black Sabbath, had spread out all over Palestine, had raided all these offices, and were actually conducting trials. Um, They had gotten cartons and cartons and cartons of documents that could have been used to convict people like Golda Meir, Ben-Gurion, and so on and so forth. The decision to bomb the hotel was, we're going to blow up the cartons, but we're going to get the people out. So we're going to give them enough warning to get the people out, but not enough warning that they can take all the cartons with them. And they made several calls to the King David Hotel. They were all ignored. The bombs went off. Uh, 90-something people were killed. It was very tragic. So he got the reputation of terrorist from that. But I think in fairness to Begin, it's very important to point out that was not the intention. Same thing happened in Dir Yassin. This was during the War of Independence a little bit later. Dir Yassin was an Arab village just outside uh Jerusalem. In fact, those people who know Jerusalem a little bit, who see the enormous Jewish cemetery on the way into the city on the right-hand side of the hill, that's more or less where Dir Yassin was. Today, that's absolutely part of Jerusalem because of urban sprawl. Again, this was an operation that was meant to dislodge what they thought was a relatively small number of Arabs who were controlling the highway. The thought was that there would be no resistance. Uh, In the end, everything that could go wrong went wrong. There was a loudspeaker that was supposed to tell them to leave the town. The truck with the loudspeaker got stuck in a ditch and couldn't get out. The communications equipment between the people that entered from one side of the village and those who came from the other didn't work. They sent in young guys who were really very ill-trained. They also did get resistance, which they were not really prepared for, and the young men panicked. And then they started throwing grenades into houses, and an enormous number of people were killed. Many less, by the way, than the Arabs originally said, and many less than David Ben-Gurion himself also said. We'll come back to Ben-Gurion a little bit later. So those were the two major incidences that got him the moniker of terrorist. It's important to remember that David Ben-Gurion was also at the head of an underground movement called the Haganah, which eventually became the Israeli Defense Forces. Menachem Begin's legacy and reputation was shaped by David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion, who ran the country for the first several decades, was very careful and meticulous to portray Begin, who was his arch rival politically, as a terrorist, as a kind of um, populist rabble-rouser, and so on and so forth. And it worked. So when Begin came to the United States in 1948, people no less august Then Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt wrote a letter to the New York Times, among with many other American Jews, saying that he should be ignored because he was a terrorist, because he was a religious mystic, whatever that even means. Um, And if you were to ask me, what's the purpose of writing this book? In some small way, I think Begin deserves a better legacy in history. He made a lot of mistakes, like every political leader out there. Uh, But he deserves a different reputation than the one that David Ben-Gurion crafted for him. If in some small way this book is able to move the needle about how Menachem Begin is remembered, then I will feel that the book was a great success. Uh, But his reputation as a terrorist is really a product of the way that David Ben-Gurion wanted him to be remembered. How would you describe Begin's worldview in terms of universal human rights uh, and the special position of the Jews? I think the best way to try to get into Menachem Begin's head is to think about the book that meant more to him than any other book. 
and that was the Bible. To give you just a quick sense of how profound the Bible was for him, when the eight Israeli aircraft were on their way to Iraq to destroy the reactor at Osirak in June 1981, he was given a whole set of briefing materials that he was supposed to read about Saddam Hussein to try to figure out what's Saddam going to do in response. He didn't open a single binder. According to the people who were in the room with him, he paced back and forth for hours reciting psalms by heart. This was a guy who had been raised on the Bible, whose father knew the Bible by heart and would get the kids to quiz him. You give me the beginning of a verse and I will conclude the verse. He loved that book. Why does that matter? It matters because the Bible is both a very universalist and a very particularist book. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible we're talking about, of course, does not in any way suggest that God cares only about the Jews. It talks about the end of days when all the nations of the world will gather together and they don't become Jews. They gather together and they live in peace. The Bible, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, talks about you can't go to this land because this land I've given to this people. And you can't take that land because that land I've given to another people. In other words, Begin, I think, inherited a sense of the Bible that God created all of humanity in God's image and they all mattered. He was unbelievably good, not only, as you mentioned, to Vietnamese refugees, to Ethiopian Jews, who of course were Jewish, but the evangelical Christians still see him in Israel as a major hero because he made them feel so totally welcome. And yet the Bible lives perfectly comfortably with a sense of Jewish particularism, which is to say it's a story of humanity, but this particular book is telling the story of the Jewish people in the context of humanity. And I think that one of the really extraordinary things about Menachem Begin, which we've lost in our world today, is that he could embrace a kind of a universal human image at one point, and at the very same moment, say at the same time, my overarching obligation is to the Jewish people. I think you and I live in a world in which more and more people have to feel that they have to choose between universalism and particularism. We live in a, a world, especially in Israel and America, where you have people for whom life is all about the Jewish people, and though they don't really say this, they don't really care that much about the non-Jews. And then you have other people who say that's a bastardization of what Judaism has been all about, and they become so embracing of universalism that it's actually very hard for them to embrace particularly Jewish causes or issues or agendas or so forth. Part of Begin's greatness what he, is that he was not a binary chooser. He was a universalist and a particularist. When he needed to use violence to get the British out, he did it. But when he saw that Sadat might be able to be the first Arab leader to make peace with Israel, he did that. As soon as the Egyptian uh, peace treaty was signed, he realized that the Jews were under threat again, so he attacked the nuclear reactor in Osirak and destroyed it completely. A great success. But shortly after that, Israel was being shelled in the north from Lebanon, and he attacked the PLO in southern Lebanon, and that war got completely out of hand. It lasted for 18 years. Israel invaded Beirut. It really was the beginning of the tarnishing of Israel's international image, and it broke his heart. Uh, and he shortly thereafter resigned and lived in seclusion. So he was both and, both universalist and particularist, both a man of violence when necessary, but a pursuer of peace. He was a very hardliner in a certain set of issues, but I think in many respects, Israel's most liberal prime minister, liberal in the sense of a commitment to civic liberties. Um, give you just a couple of examples of that. Mm -hmm. It's Menachem Begin, of all people, who was the one who insisted that the military rule over Israel's Arab citizens, which had been put in place at the beginning of the country's history, had to stop. He said, 
they're Israeli citizens. You can't have civilian rule for Jews and military rule for Arabs, and military rule for Israeli Arabs was stopped. Towards the end of his life, when he was really suffering personally and in his soul because of the high level of casualties in the Lebanon war, opponents of the war parked themselves outside his window and held up gigantic signs every day with a number of dead young men. And it was breaking his heart, and his aides saw that. They said, you know what? Mr. Prime Minister, let us just move them one block down, and you don't have to see them every morning. And he said, what are you talking about? They have every right to be on any sidewalk they want to be, and he refused to have them moved. So you have a guy who, when he needed to, could be called a terrorist. He could do all sorts of really maverick things, um, but he also insisted absolutely on civil liberties for Arabs, for Jews, for Jews who agreed with him, for Jews who did not agree with him. He was an enormous proponent of the settlement project. And yet when the Supreme Court ruled that the settlement in Elon More had been built on land that was inappropriately acquired and therefore demanded that Elon More at that point be dismantled, people were waiting for Begin to say, I'm not dismantling Elon More. And his very famous phrase in Hebrew was, Yesh shoftim Jerusalem. There are judges in Jerusalem, i.e. the Supreme Court has spoken. I'm not going to go against the Supreme Court. So a complicated guy, which makes him so interesting. <laughs> um, well, where do the rights of uh, displaced Arabs fit in that equation in his worldview? In Menachem Begin's worldview, and I want to distinguish that, of course, from your worldview or my worldview or anybody today, but in Menachem Begin's worldview, the Arabs who left in 1948 were not going to come back. And it's very important to make to make sure that people understand that was a view shared by Israeli leaders across the political spectrum. David Ben-Gurion, who was part of the Mapai liberal, eventually Labor Party, was absolutely unwilling to discuss those refugees coming back, as was Begin, for the same exact reason. They understood that for Israel to be both Jewish and democratic, there needed to be a distinct Jewish demographic majority. The minute the Arabs were a majority, then, or even close, then Israelis would have to choose between being a democracy or being a Jewish state. Now, if it wasn't a Jewish state, what was the point of the whole enterprise? And if it's not a democracy, how can you possibly be proud of your country? So the fact that the Arabs, they left, they were cajoled to leave, some were forced to leave, it was a very complicated thing, as was almost every single national sovereign project during that part of the 20th century in Europe, where millions and millions and millions of people all across Europe were displaced, removed, taken back here and there. It's simply what happened in the world. It doesn't make it any less painful or less cruel, but that's what happened. But all Israeli leaders, by the way, including Bibi Netanyahu, to this very day, insist that the right of return is a non-starter, because the right of return would basically say that the Arabs who left and their children, which now, who now number in the millions, would be able to come back. Forget the economics. Just look at the demographics and democracy. Relatively quickly, uh, they would be able to vote Israel into a non-Jewish country. And that for Ben-Gurion was a non-starter. For Begin, it was a non-starter. For Yitzhak Rabin, it was a non-starter. For Bibi Netanyahu, it was a non-starter. So he was very concerned about Israeli Arabs because those were Israeli citizens. But the ones who were not in Israel at the end of the war, he said... They're not our citizens. They should be absorbed by Lebanon, Syria, Jordan. Again, in many circles, not a popular view today, but that was his. You make the point in your biography that unlike David Ben-Gurion or Ariel Sharon or countless other pioneers in the issue of the early Zionist settlement pre-1948, Menachem Begin did not change his name. Uh, why is it significant? It's a great question. And just to give our readers some background, 
there was a kind of a, an embracing of a new Jew in the early Zionist project. The Jew was going to leave the dark and dank yeshiva and go out into the field. The Jew would leave the sacred texts behind and pick up a pitchfork and a rifle. Uh, the Jew would not be wearing black and become pale, but the Jew would be out in the fields wearing shorts and a shirt and be tan and muscular. Part of this whole creation of a new Jew was creating Hebrew names. So David Ben-Gurion had been David Gruen. Uh, Sharon's family had been Shinerman. Golda Meir had been, Go- had been born Golda Meyerson. Begin was in favor of the new Jew in the sense that he knew the Jews could now protect themselves and Jews would be sovereign and Jews would be members of the government. But unlike those other secularists, Begin never abandoned his love and appreciation for Jewish tradition. He was not what we would call today orthodox. He did not pray every morning with tefillin. Um, He kept Shabbat in a kind of a loose way. If he needed to, he wrote on Shabbat. If he wanted to, he used the phone on Shabbat. But he had a tremendous reverence for Jewish tradition. He always walked around with a kippah in his pocket so that at a certain moment, if anything ritual were to happen, he was there. Um, Again, just like in our conversation about universalism and particularism, he belied the binary categories that are so characteristic of our world today, he belied the binary categories of religious or secular. So he didn't change his name because his attitude was, Begin was a good enough name for my family in Poland. It's a good enough name for my family in Israel. I'm not ashamed of having come from Poland. I'm not ashamed of that religious tradition. He really believed that you could create a new Jew without losing the love of the tradition, without losing the literacy, and without being ashamed of who you'd been. So why change your name? Now, Begin spent decades building a powerful Likud party to stand in opposition to Israel's Labor Party, which ruled for nearly 30 years until Begin got elected. What was it that finally allowed him to win the support of the Israeli electorate? There were two major factors. Begin, even though he was kind of the Polish gentleman, I mean, Brisk Litovsk, not technically in Poland all the time, but he thought himself as a kind of an old Polish Jew. Begin wore a suit and a tie every day, because he thought that's what you do when you're in the government. Ben-Gurion, who wanted to prove to the people how populist he was, would wear these kind of silly onesie overall kinds of things. (laughs) And he would go to the North African Jews, who would come, almost a million of them, some 700,000 had come in the early years of the state. And as everybody knows, not one of Israel's better moments. They never got their fair share. They were less westernly educated. They were less literate. They were not given jobs. They were not admitted to the same educational opportunities. And they became an underclass. They are still to an extent an underclass in Israel, though it's improving dramatically. When Ben-Gurion would go to visit these people in the little Quonset huts in which they'd been housed, he dressed in those little farm clothes. And they were looking at him like, this is just not how a head of state dresses. When Begin would go, he would dress in a suit. And they thought, this man actually respects us. These were people who saw in Ben-Gurion a kind of a disparaging attitude to Jewish tradition, and in Begin, a love for the very Jewish tradition that they loved. They actually saw that he couldn't care less what color your skin was. He believed that Jews were Jews and Jews were princes. There's a line in the Beitar anthem that says, Ivri gam ben-oni ben-sar, which means any Hebrew, any Jew, no matter how poor, is actually the son of a prince. So not only was he a universalist and that he cared about Vietnamese refugees and uh, all different sorts of people, including Christian evangelicals, there was not an element of entitlement to him. There was not an element of superiority because his skin was white and their skin was darker. There was not an element of superiority because he knew Latin and he knew English and he knew French and they just, quote unquote, just knew Arabic and Hebrew. They got a sense that he cared about them. 
and they began to love him. And as they became more and more disenchanted with the Labour Party and the way in which they were being pushed aside, they became the backbone of ben, of Begin's support. Now, in 1977, he continued to get the Sephardic vote, but he got a good chunk of the white Ashkenazi Labour vote also because of a number of factors. Number one, the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Um, Golda Meir and her generals had completely messed up. There was intelligence that should have suggested that the Egyptians were planning a massive assault. The the intelligence was not heeded. Israel groped its way back to the borders from which it had started, but it lost 3,000 young men. Compare that to 1967 in the Six-Day War, uh, when Israel tripled its size in six days and lost 600 men. Now, a few years later, Israel actually ends up with the very same borders and loses 3,000. It was a catastrophe. And national anger at the Labor Party began to simmer and seethe. There was a sense that the Labor Party leaders had really become a clique and that they were not open. They were protecting themselves and each other and so on and so forth. And the straw that broke the camel's back was actually a kind of a silly little thing. But um, Yitzhak Rabin's wife was found to have a small, I think it was $10,000 account in New York or in Washington, wherever they'd been. Uh, It was illegal. The amount of money was paltry. Even back then, $10,000 was not going to make a lifetime for you. But it was illegal, and it was, and it was discovered in a time when most Israelis couldn't imagine having any money abroad, much less that much money. And that basically unleashed a torrent of anger at the Labor Party. At a certain point, enough people had simply had enough. And all of a sudden, Begin didn't seem so bad. Begin was a straight shooter. Begin lived in a tiny little home for the 29 years that he was the head of the opposition. He and his wife and three children lived in a one-bedroom apartment at 1 Rosenbaum in Tel Aviv. The three children, two girls and a boy, already teenagers, not children anymore, all shared a room. And after they went to sleep, Eliza and Menachem would take the two sofas in the living room, which were shaped in an L, push them together, and that was a bed. And Israelis had a sense this guy has the values that this country was once proud of. And so he was kind of the antithesis of Ben-Gurion. He was the antithesis of Leah Rabin. And uh, in 77, finally, all of those various factors came together. The Sephardim who had long supported him and enough Ashkenazic Labor Party people who'd had enough, and he was elected. As we mentioned earlier, Begin is heralded for having signed a historic peace treaty, the Camp David Accords, with Egypt's Prime Minister Anwar Sadat in 1979. Why was it Begin's fate to have been the one to sign this? And what were the costs to him in signing this treaty? Well, it was his fate in a positive way. I think he was very proud of it. He got the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, It was because I think Sadat realized after the 73 war that standing Arab armies were not going to destroy the Jewish state. So if he wanted the Sinai Desert back, he was going to get it not with tanks. He was going to get it with a signature. So Sadat was ready. And this is Begin's greatness. Begin's greatness was always asking, what's good for the Jewish people? If hitting the British really hard to get them out is good for the Jewish people, then so be it. If attacking Saddam and the Osirak reactor is good for the Jewish people, that's what's going to happen. But if there's an opportunity to not send Jewish boys to war anymore, then I'm going to make a peace treaty. And I think the extraordinary thing about Begin's peace treaty with Sadat is that it is held. It is held through the rise and fall of all different sorts of Israeli and Egyptian governments. It held even through the relatively brief tenure of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And, of course, the Egyptian army now is very insistent on its holding. It was an extraordinary accomplishment, and uh, he was rightly proud of that. Danny, how is Begin thought of today in Israel? It's interesting that 
There's no real political party that channels him as a huge hero. When the Likud party gets together today, you see a picture of Jabotinsky behind the speaker, but not Begin. Begin was too complex. In other words, if you are opposed to giving land back today to the Palestinians, which obviously some Israelis still are, then Begin is not a good model because he gave back the whole Sinai. If you're a person who wants to make a peace treaty and you're a leftist, then Begin is problematic because of his early years. There's nobody in the Israeli system today who is comfortable with all the parts of Begin's life. Jabotinsky, who lived earlier, uh, Ben-Gurion for the left, who lived earlier, they seem simpler. And so, therefore, in a certain way, Begin is channeled much less than one might think. But get into a taxi cab. When something bad happens in Israel, whether it's economic or security or whatever, and the taxi driver will always say to you, and it doesn't matter if it's a he or a she or Ashkenazi or Sfati, they'll always say, you know what we need? We need Begin. Because what they admire still about Begin is that you always knew where he stood. I think a lot of people today, whether they love Bibi Netanyahu or don't love Bibi Netanyahu, don't actually know what Bibi Netanyahu has in his head. With Begin, you always did. You had a sense of fierce Jewish pride. You had a sense of openness to secularists and openness to religious people as well. So I think that he's not channeled by any particular political party because his past was too complex. But he is actually beloved by the Israeli people writ large because they understood his commitment to Jewish peoplehood. They understood his commitment to a broad spectrum racially, ethnically, religiously, and so on and so forth. He was a very balanced, actually a very moderate figure as crazy as that sounds, because he was actually extreme on both sides. So at the end, he's complex and moderate, a civil libertarian, a deeply passionate Jew, a humanist, a universalist, a particularist. He was complicated. And what I think he would say simply is, life is complicated. You don't get to build a country in the pristine conditions of a laboratory. You build countries in the messy reality of the real world. Life is messy. My career was messy. But at the end of the day, wherever I am now, I can look down and say that the Jewish people have a state. And I played a really important role in making it. Danny Gordas, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Daniel Gordas is the author of Menachem Begin, The Battle for Israel's Soul. The book is part of the Jewish Encounter series, which is brought to you by Next Book Press and Shock and Books. It's just out now. Get yourself a copy. We want to know what you think of Menachem Begin. Has he been overlooked as a great leader of Israel? Or do you see his legacy as a little bit more sullied? Let us know. Join the conversation by posting a comment on our website, tabletmag.com, or you can join the conversation on Facebook. We've got a page there. We encourage you to like it and take part in all the very exciting dialogue that happens. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. We thank you very much for listening as ever. 